Well, hey, this is your old friend Bill. Whenever I find myself in Davis, I'm busy putting the fun in fundraising. But when I'm not, I always listen to KDVS 90.3 FM. And you should, too. Go Aggies! This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are pleased to announce that in our second segment today, we will have, for the first time on this program, a former member of the Bush cabinet. Governor Christine Todd Whitman, former New Jersey governor, and for the first two years of the Bush administration, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, will be joining us in segment two to talk about her efforts to bring the Republican Party around to more moderation. Governor Whitman has written a book called It's My Party Too, and we're looking forward to speaking with her about that in segment two, so don't go away. On this date in history, and that would be April 6th, in the year 1593, English lawyer and Congregationalist Henry Barrow is hanged in London for supporting the formation of churches separate and independent from the Church of England. In the year 1748, excavations began at the ancient Greco-Roman city of Pompeii, which had been destroyed and buried 17 centuries earlier during an eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And on this date, April 6, 1909, American polar explorer Robert Perry would later claim that he and his party of five men reached what he believed to be the North Pole. A conservative reevaluation of Perry's claim would say that long after his death, navigational errors would be discovered in his log, indicating that he had planted his flag perhaps 30 miles short of his goal. But for a more accurate appraisal, Radio Parallax highly suggests you get the Andreas Schroeder book titled Cheats, Charlatans, and Chicanery, which talks about the polar hanky-panky of two apparent frauds, Frederick Cook and Robert Perry, who both were racing to be the first man to the North Pole at the beginning of the 20th century. Cook claimed to have reached the Pole first, but his story just did not hold water and he was exposed as a fraud rather early on. On the other hand, Perry's backers consisted of a veritable who's who of America's richest and most powerful industrialists and politicians, including, as his ship's name acknowledged, President Theodore Roosevelt himself. To this day, the National Geographic Society, they of the magazine, still uh, support Perry's claim to have gotten all the way to the North Pole, but if you look at uh, Andreas's Schroeder book, you will uncover a, uh, <laughs> a very interesting tale of deception. We don't have time to go into this at great length, but you know what? It actually is a worthy topic for a full segment sometime later in the program. And in the months to come, but uh, but trust me, it's a very entertaining book. We can't recommend it highly enough. Cheats, Charlatans, and Chicanery. Look up the chapter titled Stuff and Nonsense at the Ends of the Earth. We also recommend Fakes, Frauds, and Flim Flammery. Even more of the world's outrageous scams by Andreas Schroeder, which tells in that volume 
how Marco Polo, sad to be told, never really went to China. Actually, National Geographic magazine still thinks that he probably did, but uh, I think if you read that book, you will be convinced to the contrary. Our quote of the day comes from CBS newsman Winston Burdett, originally one of Edward R. Murrow's team at CBS, who said at one point, I don't want to be quoted, and don't quote that I don't want to be quoted. Our statistic of the day is that Thaddeus Dubois, the outgoing White House pastry chef, was paid $120,000 a year which is only $40,000 less than National Security Advisor Stephen J. Hadley. That's according to the New York Times. While we cannot verify uh, that Mr. Dubois' pastry is exceptional, we kind of think it's plausible that it might be worth a sizable fraction of a National Security Advisor's salary, given the kind of advice that National Security Advisors seem to be giving President Bush. Our joke of the day was sent in to us by Shanta, which is as follows. There are three religious truths. One, Jews do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Two, Protestants do not recognize the Pope as the leader of the Christian faith. And three, Baptists do not recognize each other in the liquor store or Hooters. And we haven't talked to our favorite uh, humorist slash blogger in a while, Tom Burka, but, uh, but on his website, you can get cross-linked to Andy Borowitz's uh, website, which itself uh, is pretty funny. A couple of headlines we ought to share with you. From uh, March 14th, according to the Borowitz report, Ken Lay claims coconut fell on head, causing amnesia. Controversial Gilligan defense makes debut at Enron trial. Said some other good ones lately. How about Chertoff locks himself out of Homeland Security headquarters, forgets security code, secret question. I liked one from February 7th. With sweeps underway, networks ask runaway bride to run away again. Ratings hungry news nets make $1 million offer to Willowbanks. Although my, uh, my personal favorite of recent Borowitz output <laughs> comes from February 5th. Bush calls Super Bowl... A victory in the war on terror. Claims link between Seattle quarterback and Al-Qaeda. And uh, not coming from the Borowitz report is the following headline. Jesse Helms has dementia, his wife says. Once fiery North Carolina senator has moved to convalescent home. I cannot resist at this point tagging on Dorothy Parker's famous line about Calvin Coolidge. When she was told that the former president had died, Parker shot back, How can they tell? And in case the joke isn't obvious, I would repeat, Jesse Helms has dementia. Dorothy Parker, how can they tell? 
And yeah, I guess that's a pretty mean thing to say, but uh, Jesse Helms was a guy who unstintingly fought for the tobacco interests for many years, along with many defense contractors, and uh, supported actually U.S. taxpayer subsidies of tobacco growers. Not such a nice fella. Let's be a little nicer and segue as we like to do into the good, the bad, and the ugly. The Week magazine noted this week that it was a good week for Slam Dunks after Brokeback Mountain was named Best Film of 2005 by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, thus making up for its upset loss to Crash at last month's Academy Awards. It was also judged a good week for Designated Drivers after a Canadian man successfully defended himself against drunken driving charges by claiming he suffers from a psychiatric disorder that causes him to believe his car is actually being steered by country music legend Shania Twain. Two weeks ago, the magazine noted that it was a bad week for female solidarity after a study of mice revealed that females are more attracted to males that already have mates. The females can detect the odor of their rivals on the males, say researchers, and take it as a sign that a fellow is worth stealing. Proceeding to this week, the magazine judged it to be a bad week for stupid tourists. After a drunken Australian driver asked police for directions to Uluru, formerly known as Ayers Rock. The incident occurred 300 feet from the mountain-sized rock, which is visible from space and rises 1,100 feet above the otherwise flat and featureless desert of the outback. Call together now, climb your kangaroo down, sport. Climb your kangaroo down. Climb your kangaroo down, sport. And we agree that a couple weeks back it was an ugly week for what's called post-modern crime after surveillance cameras at a Canadian museum captured thieves breaking in and stealing the surveillance cameras. All right, here's one from the Only in America file. A Lodi city employee is suing the city of Lodi for damages after he backed a dump truck into his own parked car. Curtis Goki, 51, has admitted that he caused the accident, but argues that because, quote, the city's vehicle damaged my private vehicle, unquote, the city owes him $3,600. The city disagrees. This is just one of those things where you go, no, the citizens of Lodi are not going to pay for his error, said Steve Schwabauer, an attorney for the city. From the Stranger Than Fiction file, we have the following. I don't know if you saw this item. The, uh, The most comprehensive study ever done of its kind has shown that praying for sick people doesn't do them any good. 
Heart surgery patients uh, showed no benefit when strangers prayed for their recovery. And in the study, oddly enough, it turned out that the patients who knew they were being prayed for had a slightly higher rate of complications. This investigation was financed by the Templeton Foundation and was conducted by Dr. Charles Bethea, cardiologist at the Integris Baptist Medical Center in Oklahoma City, and Dr. Herbert Benson of Harvard Medical School. This has evoked a variety of responses. Uh, Dr. David Stevens, executive director of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, says he believes intercessory prayer can influence medical outcomes, but that science is not equipped to explore it. On the other hand, Paul Kurtz, professor emeritus of philosophy at State University of New York at Buffalo, and chairman of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, had a blunt response when asked why he thought the study found no effect of prayer. Because there is none, he said. We take no official position on this matter on Radio Parallax. We tend to doubt that there is an effect of prayer on medical outcomes, but we should don't want to discourage you uh, from the activity. This would be an excellent time to mention that the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. We would also like to tack on a 2002 study which was conducted by the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Vermont, which found that studies are often misleading. We have an unconfirmed report here uh, at Radio Parallax that the next study by the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Vermont is looking into the religious orientation of the pontiff. And we hope you took our advice on last week's program to go out on April 1st and take a look at the crescent moon uh, crashing into the little star cluster known as the Seven Sisters or Pleiades. Uh, I regret that um, by the time I went out, which is a good hour and a half after sunset, the moon had already passed through the cluster. So I did not get to see the stars disappearing behind the dark edge of the moon, although I hope that, uh, that some of you did. It still made quite a stunning little sight uh, in binoculars. After I mentioned this on last week's program, our own news director here at KDVS, Drake Martinet, came in to point out that I should have included a little bit of trivia with that announcement. And uh, so, uh, so, Drake, I think I will on this week's show. What is known as the Seven Sisters, or Pleiades, uh, quite, quite a little, little cluster of stars, like a miniature dipper, uh, located above and to the right of Orion. It's known in Japanese as Subaru. And if you notice on the Subaru automobiles, there are little stars. Well, that's why they're there. And, and no, I can't confirm that there are seven stars on the logo, but by God, I think I'm going to check. We had blogger Brad Friedman on uh, last month, and uh, the first news I got of the, uh, the stepping down of Tom DeLay came from his blog. And it is true. The hammer is going down. Yay! It appears that Mr. DeLay uh, is the latest in a series of casualties associated with the Jack Abramoff influence peddling scandal. We think that uh, Congressman DeLay stepping down is truly Good news for all Americans, and, uh, you know, how about an appropriate sound effect, Mr. McMillan? Yes, we offer a toast to Tom DeLay and his return to the private sector where he may take up his, his old job as an exterminator.
Let's close our first segment today with a little talk about water. We would refer you to the February 25th issue of New Scientist, article titled The Parched Planet, noting how our demand for water has turned us into vampires, draining the world of its lifeblood. Ask the question of what we can do to prevent mass global drought and starvation. like to quote a couple paragraphs. Back in the 1960s, the world was gripped by a Malthusian nightmare. Scare stories abounded. In 1968, Stanford University biologist Paul Ehrlich wrote a best-selling book, The Population Bomb, saying, quote, The battle to feed all of humanity is over. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death, unquote. That apocalypse didn't happen, thanks largely to high-yielding varieties of crops such as rice, wheat, and maize. What's less well-known is that the success of this green revolution was built on massive investment in irrigation systems. Today, the world grows twice as much food as it did a generation ago, but uses three times as much water to grow it. The magazine notes, this use of water is massively unsustainable and has led many people to conclude that the apocalypse wasn't averted, only postponed. Again, I recommend highly that you look up this article and read it. It has a graph in there that shocked me showing the staggering quantities of water that are required to grow some common crops. It will probably come as no surprise to know that one kilo of wheat takes a thousand liters of water to produce. But how about this one? One kilo of coffee requires 20,000 liters of water to produce. Almost twice that of a quarter pounder hamburger. We, uh, we agree with the magazine uh, that very probably the apocalypse wasn't averted, it was only postponed. I heard uh, Dr. Ehrlich speak here at uh, Freeborn Hall, uh, well, I guess a quarter century ago at this point. And it, we, may get him, we may get him to speak to you on this program. I think he would make a fascinating guest. Uh, you know, he's been, he's been roundly criticized for making predictions that didn't come true. But the question is, are they still going to come true just later than we expected? And according to the Sacramento Bee from uh, two weeks ago, about 500 business and civic leaders from the area gathered in Memorial Auditorium to hear Mayor Heather Fargo's State of the City address. It's become a national news item that currently Sacramento is felt to be in a riskier position than New Orleans was before Hurricane Katrina. One of the areas at greatest risk in the city is the Natomas area, an area that in a more sensible world would never have been developed. But once it was given a supposed 100-year level of flood protection, development has gone wild. Dodging all responsibility for this fiasco, the mayor said the city is now dealing with growth decisions that were made decades ago. We started building in South Natomas and garden land in the 20s, said Fargo. Northgate was built in the 1950s and 60s, and all we did was finish out South Natomas. Well, we're not sure about that, having looked at the map in the B, which shows that, uh, you know, if there is a breach of the levees at this point, the Hooters region on Truxell is going to be under 20 feet of water. A uh, poll released by CSU Sacramento found 88% of residents believe government should restrict new building in areas with inadequate flood protection. Hello? 
87% believe developers who build in flood areas should pay for flood control projects. That seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it, dear listener? I'd like to close with an excellent editorial from the Sacramento News and Review, March 30th, which said, among other things, Given all the recent hand-wringing over the flood risk in these new growth areas, shouldn't there at least have been an honest debate about whether we should continue with business as usual in the Natomas floodplain? The Sacramento City Council says no. The council refuses to consider a building moratorium or to acknowledge what to us seems obvious. Building a city in a swamp is just asking for trouble. And so a sort of pyramid scheme emerges. More growth means more revenue to fund the flood protection for those who've already moved in. That provides the political cover to approve even more development. The stakes and the costs grow ever higher. It's been said that growth for growth's sake is the philosophy of the cancer cell. As some of the world's most productive farmland gets converted to malls and parking lots, it is once more imperative that we question elected officials whose sense of boosterism is wedded to commerce at the expense of intelligent growth. When the love of growth blinds them even to concerns about almost certain flooding, things have slipped rather badly out of perspective. Developers seem to have city officials in place who will look to their futures. It's an open question whether the rest of us do too. Well said. We will continue our talk on environmental matters in segment two with Governor Christine Todd Whitman, former head of the Environmental Protection Agency. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I practice what I 